okay, I thought that I was this sort of person and now I have got a stream of people coming back to me telling me I'm a bad person. Welcome to today's podcast episode. It's a conversation with Alicia Aitken Radburn. I was so excited to get Alicia on the podcast and the way that this all came about was very, very organic. I was chatting on Instagram stories and I was talking about this idea of recording a few podcast episodes, mainly centered around influencers and perception and likability and relatability and how, I guess having a like an online following can impact the way someone sees themselves. And it just so happened that someone who works in the podcasting world, Carly, thank you, reached out to me and said, you need to chat with Alicia. Carly, who is the contact who suggested Alicia, said to me, I've just devoured her book and she would be the perfect guest to speak about this topic. And so she connected us got in touch, organized the interview. And I was just really, really excited to speak with Alicia because I watched her season of The Bachelor. I watched her on Bachelor in Paradise and I just enjoyed her. Alicia was definitely like the narrator of Bachelor in Paradise. She was always on camera talking us through everything that was happening. And I always just felt like a very warm affection for her as a character on reality TV. But that wasn't always the case. After her first season of Bachelor, she really did get the villain edit. And she was portrayed as part of this group of mean girls. And so Alicia will go into this, into our conversation. But it was really interesting to speak with her about how she was the same person on season one. She was the same person on season two and season three, like when she went back for round two and round three but she was perceived so differently. And we get into lots of different tangents during our conversation. I think I call her likable at least 28 times, which is not great. I listened back to this one. I was like, oh gosh, I should edit out how much I tell her she's likable because it's obviously not enjoyable as a listener when you hear the same word over and over again. But that's just how she is. She's so warm and so lovely and so chatty and such an open book. Reading her book, it feels like you're reading her journals. She doesn't hold back and she's like that in conversation as well. So the villain edit, I'll read a little bit about the book to you just so you have some more context and then we'll get straight into my chat with Alicia. When former government staffer, Alicia Aitken Radburn was given a villain edit on her first season of The Bachelor, she wasn't entirely surprised. There are only a handful of character tropes producers can manipulate into storylines. But the backlash on social media was unexpectedly intense, and Alicia found her sense of identity completely rocked. By a single comment, it said, You are a bad person. So we unpack that. We actually unpack quite a bit. It's a conversation that went off on a variety of tangents, 
but I think it's going to be really relatable to so many people. You certainly don't have to have been a guest on a reality TV show. You don't even have to be an observer of a reality TV show to be able to take these lessons that Alicia has learned because it's all about, I guess, making sense of what other people think of you and also putting it in its place and not letting it ruin you. We talk about identity and perception, about big reactions, relatability. There are so many parts of this conversation that I really thoroughly enjoyed. And there's a part particularly towards the end of our chat when we are talking about this concept of not overreacting even if things are causing a reaction in us. I won't say too much more here because I think it's really helpful for Alicia to explain what she means with proportionality. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation. As always, it would mean the world if you take a screenshot, pop it up on your Instagram stories. Let me know if you enjoy this conversation. Please feel free to tag me at Kylie Lately. Of course, tag Alicia as well at Alicia Aitken Radburn. Details are in the show notes where you can follow her on Instagram and also pick up a copy of her book, The Villain Edit. Just quickly, a word from today's sponsors. Unless, of course, you're one of our Venti members. In that case, there are no ads and your episode is about to keep playing. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Alicia, thank you so much for taking time out of your day, out of your tour to have a chat with me. I am so honored to be here with you today. The Villain Edit. It is Wonderful. I still have a little bit to go until I finish it because I only picked up my copy yesterday. But you are such a talented storyteller. You are so likable. I am loving, 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 loving this book. So thank you for writing it. Oh my gosh. Like that is just the most, like that is the best thing that I could, the feedback that I could get. Um, particularly the storytelling, because I think that. Um, it's it's so funny and I think we'll sort of dive into this a little bit later but I think probably in the back of my mind I've always I've always kind of rated myself as a good storyteller Um, but I guess I've had that thing and it's a very sort of um, lots of women do it where I felt like I'd like have tickets on myself or something if I express that publicly. Um, so it's really nice to have someone else say it and I think I'm going to try and embrace it a little bit more. Absolutely. Embrace it. Even the part in the book where you're talking about how you have a narrative, like like your party go-to story about your upbringing. You know, you've got certain parts that you pull out and you're like, oh, here's this part of me and you present it in this way. And I think that you're so aware of your own story and also how other people see you. And I'm really, really interested to explore that more with you. 
And I think that so many people do the same thing. Like we've sort of got an arsenal of ways that we connect with people and everyone's different, of course. Um, and I think like writing the journey of writing the book for me has been like so important in that it helped me deliver, de- develop such a better awareness of who I am as a person. Um, and I think I, I, I probably wasn't as aware before writing the book of things that I would do, like the story that you've sort of touched on, which is um, a very difficult part of my personal life. I don't have a, I don't have a relationship with my dad um, and my dad had a partner when he slept with my mom. Um, and I use it, the, the word that I use in the book is, tra- the phrase I use is trauma token. And it's like, I trade this trauma token um, when I first meet someone because I want to sort of like throw the wildest, most vulnerable part of myself at somebody in the hopes that it will endear me to them. Yeah, and it makes total sense. And it is such a human and particularly such a female thing. I think to do. I would love to start with asking you, Alicia, why did you engage with the Bachelor franchise in the beginning? It's so, it's it's really the most common first question. And it's a pretty simple answer in that I just, I really liked reality TV myself. Like I'd grown up on Big Brother, Australian Idol. Um, I watched a lot of The Bachelor myself. Like I knew I didn't and I wouldn't just know the sort of front runners that end up in those grand finale episodes. I just knew all of the cast. Um, And so I really liked, I really liked TV. I really liked The Bachelor and I just sort of applied on a whim. Um, I'd gone through a really bad breakup and I just needed something new in my life. and, and I really didn't actually think that anything was going to happen. I just sort of filled it out of, out of curiosity. Like this is so so interesting. The application takes about three hours in and of itself. So I sat down with a few glasses of wine and I just filled it out. And then it was just like a snowball effect. I just like things just kept happening. Um, I got a call for the group auditions. I went and did the group auditions. Um, and then I like got picked within that group audition to have a chat. What they do is they choose around, I think it's about two to four girls from each group. And then those girls go, those women go on to have a one-on-one with like a panel of the head honchos from the production company and from the, from the TV network. And so I just kept going, getting through until I, they, they were like, congratulations, you're on season six of The Bachelor. And then I had a decision to make. Was it an out-of-body experience when you were doing all of those games and engaging in those activities? Like, were you kind of floating above yourself and going, oh my gosh, I can see why they're making us do this activity and I know how to give them what they want? Yeah. So in, you mentioned the games and activities. So in the group auditions, they make you do like, um, they, they make you, they give you like um, hypothetical questions and they make you stand on opposite sides of the room of, um, you know, uh, if you if you believe yes, stand here. If you believe no, go to the other side of the room. And then they also make you do an interpretive dance and they put you into groups. And they, I guess they want to see how you interact with the other women. And that was the most fascinating part for me because 
I, I, I think like everyone's pretty nervous and everyone wants to put their best foot forward. And I think a lot of people are wondering, you know, you're there, you, you're hoping to be cast. A lot of people are wondering what the producers are looking for. Um, and so, and so you can sort of see that through those, the first activities, people are, are trying to put their best foot forward. And sometimes it can feel like a bit of a performance, but when you actually get to the performance, the dance that they make you do, it's hard when you're like interacting with a group of people um, and you're not actually talking to the casting director. I think that's when they really, I think that's their favorite part because they can see how people truly interact. And so like for me, I am a sort of solutions person like I'm a project manager and so I'm like standing with these women that I've never met and they were pretty reserved and I am also quite competitive and so I was like oh guys we've like we've got to get in get into gear like what are we going to do to this Ed Sheeran song and I'm like project managing the whole situation I took control and I think that the producers watch those dynamics and I guess they they pull a lot of juicy insights from them and yeah I was picked as one of the two people to go through to the next stage so they must have they must have seen something in my bossiness (laughs) it can't be easy to cast people for a show and like I can imagine that like a casting agent is looking for people that might be divisive and are going to actually feel confident to take bold action on camera. And then they also amp you up, right? Like once you were casted and bought in, like I can imagine they're like, it's like giving sugar to a child at a party. Like, you know, they know what to do. They know what to say to elevate you, to take you from like where you might sit naturally at a six to actually level 16. You are so right. And I think that one thing that we, when we talk about people on reality TV, that we kind of don't, we don't really touch on is that you do even fun, like at the foundations of going to a group audition and putting yourself out there, you have to be a particular type of person anyway. So like you, you are wanting to put yourself out there. And I do think that I don't want to speak for all reality TV contestants because everyone's different. Everyone's got a different story. And I know that my experience is vastly different to some other people, but I think that if I was to make sort of a generalization, I'd say that a lot of people who go on reality TV do so because, well, at least for me, I was looking for sort of an affirmation that I was an interesting person. And so I think when I got the, when when I was accepted to do the show, that in and of itself was such Validation. a- Yeah, it was like a, my dopamine was just like skyrocketing because I thought, oh my gosh, there's all these wonderful women and you've picked me. Um, Especially especially considering you already revered the franchise so much. Correct, correct. And it would be like stepping into a fantasy. Yeah, exactly. And, and because like, and I was quite, well, so I was 25 when I went on The Bachelor and it's so funny because- you know, being an avid viewer of The Bachelor, I look back and I have the same, I have a similar situation with footy players in that when I was younger, I used to watch these guys like, and and they all seemed like 
very adult men and then very quickly like now I'm 30 I'm like oh oh no these guys are like (laughs) they're like teenagers or like freshly 20 and I think I felt the same watching yeah watching the women on The Bachelor I remember um watching Alex Nation who was on Richie Richie was The Bachelor and I would have been in uni and I kind of just thought that she was like such an adult and just and and so I think I like thought she was like so rich and famous and perfect and her life was sorted it was like very aspirational and I had a similar experience with Florence on Maddie J's season and now and then they are two women that I ended up doing the show with and they were just like completely normal lovely people but as a viewer I had really put them on this like huge pedestal and I mean in ways they deserve it because they are just like fabulous people but I think that that I think a lot of people do that um with reality tv contestants and that it sort of changes the dynamic of the audience and the person on screen yeah absolutely and with that first season I remember watching it and I always found you so likable I know that you were cast as you know one member of the girl band of baddies like there were three of you and I I know that you were given the villain edit but for me like I remember watching and I found you so likable because even when you were saying unlikable things it was so relatable because it was like exactly how my friends and I would talk. Like who doesn't have that side to them where in in a certain setting, in a certain context, different parts of you come out and like you were always smiling and laughing. But other people took it to mean that you were actually a really bad person. Yeah, and I think that that goes to one thing that I've loved exploring is I, I think that there are also there's there's vast differences within the audience watching the show in that I think that that there's just different people interact with reality TV in different ways. So I did media and communications at uni and one of the first things that they sort of introduce you to is a theory called media effects theory. And there's it, and that sort of talks about how how we interact with media. So, you know, the news, but it can also apply for reality TV. And one of the models that they talk about is the hypodermic needle model. So that that is sort of what it sounds like, that if you think of the needle as the media that you're consuming, it's injected right into your arm and you just take the representation on screen as full reality. And then there are people that are more active participants in in watching the show. So I would consider myself before doing The Bachelor much more of an active participant in that I didn't think that everything that I was watching was, you know, if I'm watching someone be an absolute cow on a TV show, I wasn't watching necessarily. Like I don't know that person. I still had a layer within me, between me and the narrative of being like, I actually don't know that person. And as a result, I think I sort of watched more for entertainment, knowing that I was watching an edit. Um, and that was really hard to experience because I probably I probably went into the whole thing thinking that everyone watches reality TV like I do. Um, but some people do just think it is like hypodermic needle and it's just like that person is the person that I'm watching on screen and that's who they are in their real life. <laughs> 
It's so true, isn't it? Every viewer has their own lens that they are viewing you through. It's their life experiences. It's their context. It's their comprehension of what is going on. Because I can remember watching series of The Bachelor with an ex-boyfriend actually who had happened to have experience in media. And he would- like he would point out to me when an edit was happening whereby different words were being mixed together and I was mortified. I was like, no, they wouldn't do that. And he's like, yeah, they do. I can't remember what he called it, but he's like, no, it's like a cut, a drop edit or whatever and they pull different words. And once you know, you can hear the pitch change and it's like, oh, my gosh, they've just constructed a sentence that wasn't said in that way. Yeah, so that's called frankenbiting, which is really interesting. So that's when and and the, and crazy. So like, I feel like the book is mixed in that I've tried to not. I think that some people sort of looking at the cover expect me to go really deep on the sort of like um, the, the the editing tactics, I guess. And it's I do I think I do touch on it a little bit and sort of the role of the producer, but I think the bulk of it is sort of trying to reflect on how my behavior contributed to the edit that I received. But I do love talking about things like frankenbiting because one thing I learned literally I'd be, I'd done all three shows and I learned this and I, it seems so simple. And like, of course, this is the way that it works, but it blew my goddamn mind. They have so like, um, you'll shoot all through the day and I'm pretty sure that they have a staff like there's a member of the crew called a transcriber who's transcribing all the speech that people are talking about and um and then therefore because they've transcribed it they can like we sort of control f a word document that if so if they want like me to say I love you they just control f I love you on the transcript until they find it and then and then where where that sort of matches up, the next part, which I saw only in my last season, was my now husband, Glenn, was having a conversation and they had the tight shot of his head and the person he was talking to's head and they're blah, 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 they're having their conversation. And, and so you can see the words coming out of their mouth. And then they went to a different angle, which was shot from behind. So you still feel like you're in that scene, but then they put this like grab from Glenn and he was like, oh no, I did not say that at that time. Like that's not in the conversation. That's me in an interview later. So there are so many tricks of the trade and they are so good at it. Not to mention the music, the lighting, all of that stuff. Yes. You know, some people get the evil music, some people get the circus music and it tells oh my us God, how to music. feel. You are so right. I tried to, I love that you, I like, I needed to talk to you before I wrote the book because I tried to articulate the circus music in print. And I was, so what we call it is, um, this is at least on my season, we called it the doop-de-doo music. And it's like that circus slash fool music, like the fool gets it, where they're like doing something you know, odd on the red carpet, like the limo arrivals. And then you get this like doop doo doop doo doop doo doop. And it's like, I was so scared that I was going to get that music. Because it tells us, it tells the viewer, oh, this person is not a serious contender. They yes, are here for you. Yes. Like, this is not a real person. Yes. And I think that we, and that's why I, I really, I'm trying to use the book as an opportunity as well to encourage people. And I think that 
increasingly we are getting there. Um, we, we are more active participants and we are more critical of what we're watching. Um, but yeah, I, I think that more people need to, and once you do watch reality TV like that and you sort of take some of the like heavy emotion away from it, I think it can be more enjoyable as well. Totally. And so when you did receive the villain edit, how did that impact you? Like, what was that like for you? Do you remember having like a physiological response in terms of, you know, I just, I put it in the context of, I know that if I receive a really awful direct message or a horrible comment, even though I know that that person doesn't know me personally, I still get like sweaty pits and my heart starts racing and I have this physiological response and my logical brain is like, no, 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 no. This person is projecting onto me and, you know, their opinion of me is none of my business and all of those higher power type beliefs. You can do all of the self-talk. Yes, you can do all the self-talk in the world. And like I try and like I'm sure you do as well. Like I rate myself pretty well at being able to do like healthy self-talk with myself and be like, you know, that every even even as far to be like everyone's entitled to their own perspective and that doesn't that doesn't actually like don't exactly, exactly like what's the one about a peach? Like, you know, you could be like the juiciest Juiciest peach peach. for someone's yeah, no one someone's not gonna like peaches. It's all of that. But it I'm the same as you. I still do get um I love that yours is sweaty pits. Mine is like um frog in the throat like that is my deep Freeze. deep yeah. it's like it's like yeah like it's just like my throat is like all dry and I just feel sick and and so I think for the most part of the series things were mo- moving so fast that we almost didn't have we didn't have very much time to sort of pause and take stock and I, I remember the physiological reaction came Um, most pronounced when um, it was my elimination episode and I'd been watching with Kat and Romy who were my sort of fellow villains and then I sort of we were all spun out because our phones were just like absolutely going off and I sort of said it was like so anticlimactic the sort of saddest environment and I just said goodbye and I went home and then I was scrolling through the comments as I did after every episode and I think that there was something with like because because we'd been eliminated and therefore we were like not going to be featured on the show anymore there was also this other thing at play and I've thought about it recently with the Matildas and and there's so many there's so many things like areas of life that it's applicable to I mean I I've obviously worked in politics a lot and I would liken it so in, we, we basically like everyone works really, really hard on the on the like campaign, whatever election campaign you're working on in politics and you're like doing late nights and you sort of got all these colleagues and everyone like feels like a team and so you get this campaign high, which I imagine is similar to, you know, absolutely not comparing my <laughs> experiences to the Matildas, but, you know, it's the same Very sort similar. of roller coaster. Yeah, definitely. I can hardly run 100 metres. So. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's the same principle of, Um, all of this super, super exciting stuff, like the eyes of the nation on you and all of this attention on you. And then 
the big game or the or the elimination episode or the election comes and the next day it's just like oh okay that's all happened and and for me in the context like which is where we sort of deviate from the Matildas for me with The Bachelor it was so pronounced because it was kind of like I didn't remain a you know, football superstar. I was, I felt like I was back to nobody. And, and then it was kind of like, that was the time to take stock of my life. And I do remember, I want, remember one pronounced actual physiological anxiety attack was that night. And I was just lying in bed and I had tingles and just existential crisis of, okay, I thought that I was this sort of person and now I have got a stream of people coming back to me telling me I'm a bad person and I really I've I've really struggled I've never I I don't think I've ever internalized it to the extent that I have truly believed that I'm a bad person but I definitely have grappled with that question for many many years which I think is so relatable Alicia because particularly as females, we really are raised and we are socialized to look at ourselves from the outside in through other people's perspectives, through our achievements, through what we can bring to the table. So it makes so much sense that when you have all of this vitriol or all of this feedback coming at you, even though you logically know it's a lot to do with editing, it's a lot to do with context. Yes, a lot of us have a snarky side to ourselves, but you just have so it's, many people so funny. highlighting it. Yeah, on the snarky thing. And I just think it's like so amazing that you point out that like, you know, we, we all are sort of multifaceted people. And it's so funny because all of my girlfriends that I speak, literally everybody that I speak to, if we're like just in a casual conversation about The Bachelor, the amount of times that I've heard, oh, if I went on The Bachelor, I would be the villain. And it's like yes. <laughs> all of yes. these like because you know you are like with like uh, and a lot of the women that I associate with are really like powerful outspoken women and I think it's funny that I've just heard that be relayed to me so many times yes and I think it just makes so much sense that when you're having strangers project onto you or really latch onto this idea of you it makes sense that you would go inwards and grapple a little bit with that even though you know at your core you're not a bad person when enough people are telling you that you are of course you're going to actually want to be curious about that and I think something I found really interesting is that you engaged with it you were replying to people you were responding to journalists like you weren't shying away from it but it's like you had the awareness that you also could show other sides of yourself. Yeah, and I think like in terms of engaging with people, I definitely went through this. It was like there was a window there where I I felt like because I hadn't had the opportunity, it wasn't like Bachelor in Paradise wasn't happening yet. I think I had been contacted, but I was still going through the casting process and that's a whole other conversation in and of itself because – they approached Kat, Romy and I and Romy had been like a question that's come up a lot on the book tour has been, you know, did you feel betrayed by the producers because, you know, you do sort of build a camaraderie with them and I think it depends on the person you are because 
for me, I probably, I had sort of like an awareness um, from politics, I guess, and being in sort of media spaces of how sort of I'd liken producers to journalists in that um, not everything that they're creating is sometimes favourable, but they're sort of just doing their job. So I didn't, I, I take so many things personally, but for some reason I didn't take that personally, Where, whereas Romy um, felt deeply betrayed by by the producers. And so, you know, that's that's her, her story to tell. Um, but I think that was a contributing factor to the fact that she, so she was approached for Bachelor in Paradise and she said no. And she was also seeing a guy, but I, I she did she did not enjoy her bachelor experience. Um, and so when so during that process where I was sort of like um, going through the process of being cast for Bachelor in Paradise, I was nervous that because Romy wasn't going to do it, that I would lose my spot because I thought that they would only be interested in the mean girls being reunited. And, and I, I felt it's so funny. People are like, why would you go back? And it's like, I thought from a pragmatic position, if you've just blasted this representation of me to half a million Australians, you know, the only way that I'm really going to make progress other than me, like, DMing one journalist, you know, one by one, if I'm going to really make progress on showing people the person that I am, um, it's, I'm going to have to go do it again. And And so. Did you you go back and think, okay, I'm going to act differently? I didn't because I, I, it's hard. I think I probably, I, there was there was l- l- not a whole lot of strategy in it. I thought I, I probably went in with the same thoughts as I did the first season and I was so fearful of being a villain on the first season and actually, in fact, most of the women there are. So you like rock up on the first night of The Bachelor and you've got 28 women, everyone's being pulled for interviews and you've never done it before, you've got a camera in your face. And everyone is scared of being the villain and of saying like something snarky about the other girls. So when you've got a producer standing in front of you and they ask you something pointed like um, that girl, uh, what did you think of Sally taking a lot of time with The Bachelor tonight? Everyone is like walking on eggshells tiptoeing, trying not to, like giving the most political diplomatic answer ever because they don't want to be the villain. And I remember on that first night, but 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 that also is difficult because then you're sort of like not giving them anything. And and it's a I fine told, line. Yeah. So I told um I told myself that first night that the only protection against being a villain would be to be myself because I had a I had a feeling that like I, I thought that I was not a I didn't consider myself a villain in my usual life I was definitely not a saint but I wasn't like the devil incarnate um and I went in with the same perspective to the first season of Bachelor in Paradise I was like oh I'm just gonna try it again and hopefully and I do think that there is something to be said about um, they're just very different shows and you have way more of an opportunity on Bachelor in Paradise to actually share 
the layers of your personality with people, but it took it took a while when the first season of Bachelor in Paradise aired for people to come around to me. Um, I was still like really being blasted in the comments for a couple of episodes and it was only, it was interesting, it was only until people saw me in the context of a relationship where like I'm trying to sort of, I'm going on a date with Jules in that season that people started to sort of come around to me. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And there are so many layers to that, right? Like there's like really deep layers that we won't have time to get into today in terms of how often women are perceived as more valuable when they are partnered. You know, it changes things. You are so right. And it's so funny because um, I remember for the book, I've gone back and I've gone to some of the social posts and, you know, on the Bachelor in Paradise Facebook post, um, if they've like popped up a video of me and Jules's first date, which was a really like really amazing piece of television. Like we'd gone on this date and um, we were kind of the perfect people for the date that the producers had planned because they brought out all of these food, these um, aphrodisiacs. That was like the hook of the day. I remember. So yeah, it was like feeding each other asparagus and we were just like, we were both like willing to go with it and we just had so much fun and so I went back to that Facebook post and I looked at the comments and obviously everyone was still sort of had that frame of reference of me being the villain and everyone commented like a really like strong majority of people were being like this is cute but that girl, like I hated her on the other show. She's going to break his heart. And that did not, <laughs> it was the complete opposite. It's so interesting what people project onto someone that they don't know yes. or, or the way that parasocial relationships can change. Like even with influencers and other media personalities, I see it all the time. There seems to be this like cyclical nature where an influencer will have a really strong connection with their following, you know, that's their community, but then something shifts and they become unrelatable. And then that, you know, once revered person becomes really unlikable. Yes. And it's like, I think no, no, they, they're probably the same person. It's just your, your, your perception. You're so right. I think a little bit is tall poppy syndrome. And then also the other thing that is I pull out of that that is so interesting to me is that um, sometimes I see on these like influencer update style of pages, they'll do these polls, which I, you know, that's another conversation in and of itself, but it will be like, who's your favorite influencer and who are your worst? Like who, who don't you like? And there's recurring names. And I just really... I really think that if people were to meet meet the people that they consider to be the worst influencers, you know, maybe this is not across the board. I do believe that there are people out there that are problematic and fail to take, take accountability for their actions time and time again. Um, but I think that, you know, 
for a lot of people that we consider to be, you know, villainous or or annoying or someone that we don't connect with, if we were to actually sit down and have a conversation with them, I'm sure that we would and and that goes to like bad behavior as well. I'll tell you a story about last night about the book launch. Um, so we're like, we've done the conversation and then it was opened up to questions from the audience. And I highly doubt that this audience member will listen to the podcast, but I mean, it's fine because it's an intellectual conversation anyway. Um, it was, it was an older woman. And the first question that she asked me, she started really timidly and she was like, I saw you walk in tonight and I've just got to ask, um, are we expecting a little baby? <laughs> oh my God, your face. <laughs> your face. Yeah, right. And actually it was half the audience as well. Everyone was just like, holy shit, like it's 2023. You don't, don't ask that question. And, and I think... And it's so interesting to me because it's happened to me online as well before. Like I just, yeah, we, it's it's wild. And and probably even how I've navigated it, actually, I don't, I, I think I'm pretty, I try and translate how I am in real life to social media. But I think a lot of the time, if something like that, if someone had asked that question in real, uh, in online, it would be just like a kind of barrage of hate um, and, and something I really enjoy talking about is proportionality. And so like, I didn't, I, I just, I, I tried to sort of, I said to her, I said like, oh, you know, like it's not, it's not necessarily on the cards yet. And, you know, I'm, I'm remiss to talk about it because what if we were trying and it wasn't working for us, you know, there's like, and I'm speaking to the people in the audience who like know that that's not a good question to ask a woman. You don't know anyone's circumstances. Plus if it's a commentary on my body, like it's just my body. I hate to, I hate to tell you. Um, but I thought I, I, I walked away from that and I was actually proud of myself because um I, I just, I do believe that it wasn't her intention. Like we're in a public place. I don't think her intention was to be nasty. She was an older woman and it, yeah. And so proportionality is interesting to me. I think that it's it's one thing to, if someone online, for instance, is like, is there a bun in the oven? I think it's one thing to be like, hey, like that's not the most appropriate question. Um, and there's another thing to be like, you're a see you next Tuesday. Like, how dare you? You know what I mean? Totally putting things into perspective. And I think from reading your book, like you were able to kind of right size a lot of that feedback that you had coming at you. You were able to separate it from actually being an attack on you, the human, and realizing Mm. it was actually more to do with them giving feedback on a caricature of you. Yeah, you're so so right. I yeah, I definitely think that I managed to get to that stage. Um, and so it was really a journey because I think at the very beginning I went through that like internalised grappling of like am I just, is there something horrendously flawed? Like do you ever have this fear that it's like how you think about yourself is not actually, like I, I often think like am I really a really annoying person? Babe, all the time. Yeah. all the time like and I, think, I think like we I think we actually have accurate perceptions of ourselves most of the time 
Unless we're living in like the Delulu era, which is kind of fun. (laughs) I so relate to that. And I think like back to what you were saying earlier about if people actually met someone that they have deemed as bad in real life, they would be so surprised to see it's just a human. And there's a line in your book where you're talking about another one of the contestants and you say, you know, we made amends quickly because it's harder to hate someone up close. Mm. And I was like, yes, that it's that distance that allows people to fill in the blanks and make this character assassination of who you are. And it's like, no, 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 babe. If we were at the school gates together and we were having a chat, you would see that I'm self-depreciating, that I do think I'm annoying, that I, I know all of this stuff. Like I'm not the villain just because you filled in the blanks? You are so right. And it is, I see it happen. Okay. So one of the things I loved about Bachelor in Paradise is when you had conflict with somebody because you're just like, it's it's almost, imagine it's like a beach big brother house. Like it's an open air big brother house where there's like pina coladas. And so the cameras are basically always rolling and you're always within sort of like a 50 meter radius of or your other castmates. So if something happens, if you have a fight, if someone says something nasty to someone and, you know, the producers will sort of like push it along as well, you have to go sit under a cabana with that person and talk about it. And that either leads to, you know, um, depending on the sort of person, people we're dealing with, that's like an either nice diplomatic conversation and we say sorry at the end, or it's like some amazing TV, I guess, in the producer's eyes. Um, and so, and I, and I actually really loved that. And when I came back to the real world, I had this thought that I was like, oh, I kind of wish we could apply that conflict resolution in our real lives because I think that there are so many people, um, I see it in family dynamics a lot, like people be estranged from family members and they're doing, sometimes they're doing what you just articulated so well in that they are filling in the blanks of a relationship. Whereas, so like you might have like some really protracted like this person said something to me years ago and I've held on to it and now I've like really built this person up to be my nemesis and villain in my own mind whereas if you were to and it's so hard because like who wants to do the hard thing and like go and sit down like contact relationships Australia and like go for a you know therapy session we just don't really do that very often Um, But I think if people, if we had like mediated conversations, I think you would find that like so much really embedded conflict can, can be resolved and people can get to a better place. And I do find it a bit sad that, you know, people have really long protracted conflicts and they don't talk for 20 years and then someone dies and it's like, holy shit, like all of the relationships that we are potentially missing out on because either one of us are sort of too proud or too scared or fearful to take that step and have the uncomfortable conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And something that has been on my mind a lot lately has been how we seem to be able to hold space for ourselves to have inconsistencies and incongruities and we can hold space and go, oh, yeah, I did that thing, but these are all the reasons why I did that thing, but we don't oh afford that to other people. Okay, Kylie, this it has a name. It's called um, Actor Observer Bias and it's 
Esther Perel writes about it in her amazing book, State of Affairs. So this sort of seg- it segues us to, um, you, you know, a complex part of the book, which is um, I don't even know if you're up to it yet. So great, great. You're, now you're going to speed read to the end. I write about um, my now husband, Glenn, when we left Paradise. He kissed somebody else. We'd like just said I love you to each other. We went back into the real world and, you know, by by our boundaries that were established, which we, we hadn't actually really talked about, but I guess we took on the like standard heterosexual boundaries of like it, at the very least like kissing somebody was not okay. <laughs> and, and so, you know, he had betrayed my trust and then I went and I slept with somebody else as like the most ultimate um, just driven by like revenge and anger and like fuck you <laughs> um, and we employ this thing actor observer bias where like for him in that situation he is like the most awful person but me doing something something that people would also deem to be like disproportionate response and and not the same thing at all um, I was like, oh, no, these are the mitigating factors. You know, he did this to me first. And I've done it as well in my own life. Like when I've sort of transgressed in previous relationships, I'm like, oh, no, it was okay because he was a really toxic boyfriend and I was just trying to escape that relationship. And, you know, when someone else does something evil onto us, we really don't give them the same sort of hold space for their behaviour like you say. I'm, I'm like nodding along furiously because even in conflict in my current relationship, like when we butt heads, which isn't often, but when we do, mm. it's so true because you can explain away your own reaction to something. You can yes. explain away your reaction by going, well, hang on. I didn't mean that because I was in a flight, fright or freeze state, but yes, it's like, you yes. don't, you don't always remember to afford them the same grace. And it's the same. You with are so right. Yeah, so I think that, and it's so hard because like these things are so ingrained within us. But I think if we can get better, and it's it's funny because um, a lot of the book I read a lot of Brené Brown and I read Esther Perel, um, two like fabulous women who I think talk about relationship dynamics in such an empathetic way. And there's, I know a lot of people like friends of mine and just people out there who are like, I love Brene Brown and who is, you know, so nuanced and so considered. And I think that we read it theoretically and we're like, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds like a good way to lead my life. And then in practice, we're like not actually very good at it. We we do get into that sort of like um, fight or flight and and that can that's like not really a helpful space to be in identifying it's good though so that's one one start oh, Look we're at all us, like philosophizing all just works <laughs> in progress i know yes. renee brown esther perel both yes. women that i just truly admire and it sounds yes. like you are the same you just absorb their work and their oh. words and and it is one thing to go oh yes i can see in theory, but putting it in practice is different. But it sounds like you have put a lot of it into practice, you know, even in just right-sizing people's feedback of you. That's not an easy thing to do. There are going to be people listening who are just massively in awe that it didn't cripple you, that you're not still in bed, you know, crying over people's comments. Like, you are doing the work and it's amazing. Can you tell me what right-sizing is? Because I think that's such an amazing word. I don't even know if it's a thing. I just say it like as in because I 
can I have inattentive type ADHD and so yes. does one of my sons and there is definitely an element of rejection sensitivity and catastrophizing that I experience in my real life like I am so sensitive and I use that terminology just with my own self-talk because I'll be like oh hang on is that the big rejection that I'm experiencing or is it just an everyday thing that I have that blown awesome. up so that I don't is know. So awesome. There's probably a technical term, and someone will Google it and be like, "No, bitch, right sizing is actually." Did, did it? Did it? <laughs> it might not be right. That's just the. It's no. just what I use. It's just what I talk about with my son. Like even this morning, right? Like I've got identical twins, and one is just so, so sensitive, and he ruminates over things. And as he yes. was getting out, as he was getting out of the car to go to school today, he turned to me and he started to get spirally about something. And I said to him, I think we need to right size this. Like, is this, is this really the biggest problem that we have to face right now? Like, is there another time and place? How do you find that? Like, how is it? Cause I'm also so interested in. Cause Glenn's um, a twin. Yeah, he is a twin. He is a twin. And I'm interested in like how kids respond to like that's such a beautiful way to parent to be like, you know, these are emotions you're having, but is it, you know, I use the word proportional before and I think that that's very similar to right sizing. Like is this, you know, of, of course all of our emotions are valid, but do we want to be expending, should we be expending our emotions on this whatever's happening to us right now? And how does he find that? I think that kids are so much more intelligent and so much more open to those sorts of conversations than we give them credit for. I can talk about really big concepts with them in a way that they understand. And I think a lot of that is to do with my own interest. Like I am so fascinated in the psychology of human beings and why we are the way we are. And so with emotional intelligence, I do think I have a good grip on that. I don't do homework with them. I'm terrible with intellectual stuff. Like I don't know anything that's going on in the world. There are lots of ways I don't serve them well in parenting, but I do think when it comes to emotions and feelings and processes, processes, I think I do a good job with the boys. You know, we will sit down and we'll talk about our Venn diagrams of feelings and wow. where we cross over and what it means for us. And I think oh, anyway, I won't bore you with parenting stuff. No, no, no. I love it. That's so special. And like, I, yeah, I just do think that the inner child is such an interesting thing and it's like still – we, I was I mentioned that at the book launch last night um I, t- I told the room that my um my first ever hotmail account was star in a shadow and oh. I think that was like you asked me about how I know it's so it's a bit it's pretty cringe but it's also like very cute um you asked me like first off about like the interest in reality tv and I think that there was also just like a part of my inner child who was like a bit of a performer and wanted to sort of like show off my personality and so I think it's it's gonna be so beautiful to watch your boys grow up and sort of see what they hold on to through their lives yeah absolutely Alicia it's been such a pleasure to speak with you the villain edit a memoir about reality tv and taking control of the narrative I can't wait to finish it off I know I'll finish it tonight it's so well written it's such a insightful but also easy read. So again, congratulations and thank you. Thank you for such a beautiful conversation. Of course. Oh, I should also I make it very like 
I could go six hours with you. I know. I know. You'll have to come back again because there are so many things I'd love to chat with you about from politics right through to moving for love and all of the things. You are so thoughtful. Like that is just like you are super thoughtful. Like I just like, yeah, it was awesome talking to you. you. And you like just really like I feel like my conversation with you is like the same conversations that I have with my girlfriends where we can just sit for hours and just like, unpack human behavior and try and like you know try and not be like hectic about psychoanalyzing every situation but it is so good to understand the drivers of you know what makes us tick and I do feel like they say don't write books for therapy or a memoir for therapy but I do genuinely feel like I've written this and it was so hard and I really like thought I was gonna have to hand back the advance at multiple points (laughs) um but um, it has really like taught me a lot about myself as well. So yeah, well, so you good. did it. You did it. Thank Enjoy you, the rest of your tour. Um, our listeners can get their hands on a copy from all bookstores and department stores now, can't they? Yes, absolutely, they can. Incredible, Alicia. Thank you so much. Thank you. Today's podcast episode was recorded on the land of the Bunjalung Nation. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.